by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the censorship of former political prisoners. Also going to be talking about uh, former Burkina Faso President Blaise Campillor being sentenced to life in prison for his role in the assassination of Thomas Sankara. Uh, also going to be touching on the rise of the far right in the U.S. and so much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. The former French colony known as Upper Volta gained its independence from France in 1960, but continued to struggle under corrupt leaders and French dominance. That is until 1983, when Thomas Isidore Noel Sankara seized power in a popularly supported coup. Sankara sought to eliminate corruption and the dominance of the former French colonial power in the country, and he immediately launched one of the most ambitious programs for social and economic change ever attempted on the African continent. But the first thing he did was to rename the country from Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, which means land of upright man to symbolize the new autonomy and rebirth of the country and its people. Sankara was an anti-imperialist, Marxist, and pan-Africanist. He opposed all foreign aid, pushed for debt reduction, nationalized all land and mineral wealth, all to avoid the power and influence of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and their accompanying political influences from the West. One of Sankara's quotes regarding his foreign policy that still resonates today is, he who feeds you, controls you. In just four years of governing Burkina Faso, Sankara made astounding strides. He vastly improved the public health and well-being of the people by vaccinating 2.5 million children against meningitis, yellow fever, and measles in a matter of weeks. He initiated a nationwide literacy campaign, increasing the literacy rate from 13% in 1983 to 73% by 1987. He redistributed land from the feudal landlords and gave it directly to the peasants. Wheat production rose in three years from 1,700 kilograms per hectare to 3,800 kilograms per hectare, making the country food self-sufficient, reducing poverty and hunger among the people. Sankari was a starch supporter of women's equality. He appointed women to high governmental positions, encouraged them to work, recruited them into the military, and granted pregnancy leave for women during their education and work. He outlawed female genital mutilation, forced marriage, and polygamy. And as an avid motorcyclist himself, he formed an all-women motorcycle personal guard. And he did make great strides in eliminating corruption. He sold off the government fleet of Mercedes-Benz cars and made the Renault 5, which was the cheapest car sold in Burkina Faso at that time, made that the official service car of the government ministers. He reduced the salaries of all public servants, including his own, which he limited to $450 a month and forbade the use of government chauffeurs and first-class airlines. 
parking tickets. He even refused to use the air conditioning in his office because he said such luxury was not available to anyone but a handful of Birkinabis. Sankara even limited his own personal possessions to his car, four bikes, three guitars, a refrigerator, and a broken freezer. He improved the infrastructure of the country by planting over 10 million trees to present desertification or the expansion of the desert. He built roads and a railway to tie the nation together, all without foreign aid. So Thomas Sankara saw the need for other African nations to adopt the same principles toward independence from foreign influence. And he spoke about this in forums like the Organization of African Unity against continued neocolonial penetration of Africa through Western trade and finance. He called for a united front of African nations to repudiate their foreign debt saying that the poor and exploited did not have an obligation to repay money to the rich and exploited. And when the people wanted to hang his picture in public spaces to honor him for these achievements, and because this was the tradition with other African leaders, Sankara refused to allow them to do it. When asked why he didn't want his portrait hung in public, he said, there are seven million Thomas Sankaras. And that, you see, was the threat of Thomas Sankara, because for all of the good that Sankara did to elevate the poor and peasant class in Burkina Faso, he angered the bourgeois class and the former colonial power France that was still deeply entrenched in neighboring countries like Ivory Coast. On October 15, 1987, Thomas Sankara was killed by an armed group with 12 other officials in a coup organized by his former colleague, Blaise Campeore, who went on to rule Burkina Faso for 27 tumultuous years until he was ousted in a coup in 2014, upon which he fled to Ivory Coast. But just yesterday, a military tribunal in Burkina Faso found Campeore and two of his former top associates, Hyacinth Cafando and Gilbert Diandere, guilty of the assassination of the man known as Burkina Faso's Che Guevara. And all three were sentenced to life in prison in absentia. Now, whether Campeore and his accomplices will be extradited to serve their sentences, that remains to be seen. But finally, Sankara's widow, Marion, sees some measure of justice for her husband's murder, as do the people, mostly the poor and peasant classes in Burkina Faso and the youth today who see Sankara as their hero. And even though some in the bourgeois class criticized Sankara's policies because they claimed he did little to enrich ordinary people and he curtailed freedom, Mariam Sankara said after the hearing, I think Burkinabe know who Thomas Sankara was, what he wanted, and what those who assassinated him wanted too. Oh, not just Burkinabe, Mama Sankara, all of us. Pan-Africans and Marxists and African revolutionaries know who Thomas Sankara was. We know what he accomplished in Burkina Faso in four short years, what more he could have and wanted to accomplish for and with all of Africa and what that would have meant for Africa, Africans and the diaspora. 
That is why not just Campeari and his goons wanted Sankara gone, but France and its former colonial allies in Europe and the U.S. wanted him gone too. The investigation into the international connections in this sordid affair needs to commence immediately. But just a few days before he was assassinated, Sankara said, while revolutionaries as individuals can be murdered, you cannot kill ideas. The fact that we do know who Sankara was, what his importance is, and that we continue to struggle to realize his ideals for one united Africa and the diaspora proves him right. Long live Thomas Sankara. Follow Lukman Nation on Patreon.com for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Jalil Mutakin, an activist, former political prisoner and Black Panther, and the author of We Are Our Own Liberators. Jalil, thanks so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure, my brother. Assalamu alaikum, peace, part of Argande, Jambo, Hadea, Zunta, whatever is your name, whatever is your language, uh, I greet you in uh, peace and solidarity. Oh, uh, yes. We appreciate those universal greetings, brother. And um, it appears that there's been an issue with a talk or a presentation that um, you were supposed to be giving at the State University of New York, Brockport. And I mean, it appears that there's been a real attempt to try to sort of scuttle and mischaracterize this um, presentation in a number of ways, even down to the language of referring to you as a a political prisoner. And I was hoping you could help us understand more about uh, just what this event was supposed to be, what has you know happened in the time since, and just uh, uh, why do you think uh, this is happening? Well, of course it happened because I am, in fact, a member of form, uh, a veteran member of the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army. And anyone or anybody or organization that fights on behalf of uh, black people and African people are now struggling for national liberation and independence, uh, they, they, and I mean uh, uh, law enforcement for the most part, were trying to vilify and deny them an opportunity to give their message apart, give, their, uh, give, their, give out their message. As you well know, COINTELPRO still exists, uh, we're still in operation, uh, particularly in regards to uh, art struggle. And so they will try to do everything they possibly can to defy uh, our capacity to, uh, or, or to prevent our capacity to uh, organize and train and to teach our people uh, our history. You know, Carter G. Woodson uh, uh, wrote a book called The, 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 Mis- the Miseducation of the Negro. Right? And we find that for us, over 400 years of under, under siege of white supremacy, uh, we have been miseducated. And so for 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 the greater part of uh, the last 50 years, uh, we've been fighting for our own liberation independence. And uh, in the course of doing so, they have also sought to ensure that we maintain a system of slavery, particularly the penal system. So uh, they don't want that message to be made, uh, particularly law enforcement. And they made every effort to scuttle 
my uh, invitation to speak at Brockport. Uh, of course, they failed in, in terms of getting the message out, uh, although I was not able to present personally. I did do so virtually. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that in their efforts to silence you uh, and to demonize you, they accused you of anti-Semitism, which, you know, this is par for the course almost of of how uh, the agents of the state, uh, you know, one of the tactics they use to silence uh, particularly left voices. But, you know, just the fact that they, they accuse you of anti-Semitism and they also try to weaponize uh, the fact that you are a former political prisoner and try to use that against you. I mean, how, how did that play out? I mean, what were the things that they said that they you know, to prop up these claims of anti-Semitism in particular? Well, uh, anti-Semitism, I, I, you know, really, I don't even know where that came from. Uh, outside of the fact that there was a, uh, I guess, a Jewish person who felt that uh, my uh, support of Palestine, uh, the liberation and independence of Palestine, and being critical of the apartheid nature of uh, Israel uh, was the, the dynamic from which they accused me of being anti-Semitic. But many people do not understand in terms of the history of the Semitic people, uh, and I think Semitic people, uh, the Jews are not the only Semitic people uh, in that particular region. Uh, uh, the, the Semitic people are all of the Indo-Asia, uh, for the most part, Indo-Asia and the Middle East area. Uh, many of the people there are of Semitic origin. Uh, one thing that needs to be understood, for the most part, is the origin of both the Jewish and the Palestinian uh, uh, nation, right? the Arab nation. Uh, they evolved from the same father, Abraham, uh, the prophet Abraham. Uh, Abraham's uh, union with Sarah gave rise to, to the, 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 the Jewish uh, nation. And uh, uh, Abraham's uh, uh, union with uh, Hagar gave rise to the uh, uh, Palestinian, or Arab nation. All right? So, I mean, this is a struggle between families, as far as I'm concerned, you know, that needs to be resolved. Uh, but I don't know, of course, they would not want me to say anything like that. Because uh, they don't want people to understand that history. And also what is uh, so important about the history in terms of the area itself, right, will come from the, the era of the Philistines, one of the, first, one of the first occupations of that territory, long before uh, uh, Joseph, uh, uh, who was the son of uh, Israel or son of Jacob, uh, gave that land, uh, land to, Je- uh, to Jacob, who changed his name, by the way, to Israel, and therefore the land was called the land of Israel, because that is the land, is the territory from which uh, Jacob, who changed his name to Israel, uh, received this land from Joseph, who was a wazir of uh, of uh, the the Pharaoh. Okay, so we have to understand this history, and if we don't understand this history, then naturally the Akhenati. When I say Akhenati, I'm talking about the European Jews who now occupy, for the most part, the area of uh, Israel, and now defining what Israel is about. Uh, for, uh, are not uh, essentially uh, uh, inheritors of that, that particular land. You know, so uh, uh, the Palestinians naturally uh, have been living there for hundreds of years, and the area, as I mentioned before, has changed hands but in terms of occupation from the Ottomans to the, Christ- to the Christians to the Ottomans and then back to the Palestinians. And so we, we really need to look at this history and, and, and define it uh, uh, based on historical accuracy and not on this philosophy of Zionism, right? And so that, that's an issue that they may probably have with me because I talk about the truth, talk about, his, talk about things in its, in its historical uh, dynamic historical terms. And so uh, that's the only reason why I think that would 
uh, accuse me of being anti uh, uh, or anti uh, Semitic, uh, when in fact uh, I'm neither uh, of that. I'm not anti Semitic or anti Jew. I'm anti apartheid. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, Brother Julio, you know, a part of this to me really seems to stem from the fact that <clears throat> the United States as an entity, for all of the uh, moralizing and finger wagging that it does um, towards other countries when it comes to their political prisons or the or their treatment of political dissent, when the U.S. doesn't even acknowledge um, having political prisoners itself. And, and I don't think this is something that a lot of people in the U.S., um, necessarily realize because, I mean, you know, the fact that the U.S. does pretend like they're on the political prisoners mean that the actual political prisoners themselves get invisibilized, right? And um, it's sort of an out of sight, uh, out of mind thing. But it, I think it shows how important this, uh, you know, lie of the U.S. as this upstanding uh, nation and, and the paragon uh, of everything that a country should be. I mean, I mean, it shows that, I think, for the lie that that it is, you know, in part. I mean, to suggest that, you know, this country, which, as you mentioned earlier with Cointelpro, carried out this very intentional, very purposeful, brutal, deadly, uh, uh, vicious campaign of sabotage and assassination and uh, incarceration and all these sorts of things. I mean, you know, they, they spared no uh, resource, spared no expense in trying to crush this movement of poor, working and oppressed people who were speaking openly, you know, about the contradictions of capitalism, imperialism and all those sorts of things, which, you know, of course, is what uh, uh, inclines one to be in solidarity with the struggle of the Palestinian people. And so, you know, Brother Jalil, the mere fact that the U.S., doesn't even acknowledge that it has political prisoners to me still seems like a key uh, a contradiction in what we're uh, talking about here and why it makes it even more important that we have to really push for this truth. You know what I mean? Absolutely. The uh, United States uh, criminalizes uh, dissent in this country. And that's the principal uh, goal uh, for them to uh, negate the fact that there is uh, issues going on in this country, divisions going on in this country. Uh, actually, a 400-year war against black people, African people in this country, uh, and, and indigenous people in this country, 500-year war against indigenous people in this country. Uh, they don't want to acknowledge that because to acknowledge that is to acknowledge that the United States, the end of itself, is a farce, is a lie. Uh, as they promote themselves as being the free, uh, uh, free leader of the world or whatever the nonsense that they put forth out there. And so what they do, they criminalize any dissent. You know, uh, anything that goes on in this country that is a opposition to white supremacy, opposition to capitalist imperialism, they criminalize. And therefore, they deny the existence of those who have been uh, in dissent in opposition to the system and been sent to prison are, in fact, political prisoners. I remember back in 1981, I had an opportunity to have a journalist uh, speak to, uh, uh, raise a question to then Ambassador to the United Nations, Andrew Young. And the question that I had this journalist asked him in the press conference in Paris was, does political prisoners exist in the United States? Andrew Young answered truthfully. He said, oh, perhaps a thousand. Now, you go check that. You can go Google Andrew Young, the political prison, New York Times, and those articles will come up where he says that. And uh, he was vilified in the press. He was called on the carpet at the White House by Jimmy Carter uh, uh, to, to talk down uh, the issue of the existence of political prison in the United States. Why? Because it, it lends to the, uh, uh, their own hypocrisy in their relationship to other people, uh, other countries, nation, nation states in the world. 
uh, where they condemn them for their political prejudice, but then deny their own existence of political prejudice, and in, in, in so doing, deny that there's dissent, that there's opposition to white supremacy and capitalist imperialism in this country. Yeah, and you know, I, I understand if if I heard you correctly that you did uh, uh, ultimately uh, conduct uh, a session with uh, uh, attendees uh, from the university virtually. I think if if I heard you correctly. But yeah, absolutely correct. We we did conduct a uh, uh, myself and Professor uh, uh, Raphael Outland, who uh, who was the one who invited me to Brockport. Uh, uh, we did conduct our our interview, our talk. Uh, it was for an hour, maybe almost almost two hours, and it was very well received uh, by those who was in attendance and also the many who are uh, who are listeners to it. I believe over 400 people was on that webinar, on that Zoom uh, meeting. And so uh, what they did in terms of trying to vilify me and prevent that from happening was actually promote uh, the event. You know, if they had not promoted it, there would probably been no more than 50, maybe 100 people in the auditorium. Uh, but now on the Zoom, we had over 400 people. Uh, maybe 450 people on there. So uh, there, there's uh, what they call unintended consequences, right? Uh, when they do not look uh, uh, far, far, far ahead or uh, future focus in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Uh, so it, in my opinion, it backfired on them. It gave me a, a, a broader audience and was to give this message. Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, and what was the message? What What did you tell those 400 people, Brother Muntakim, that was so threatening that, uh, you know, the administration at SUNY and the police department in New York and all of these other people tried so hard to keep you from saying? Yeah, I talked about our struggle for national liberation and independence. I talked about uh, 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 we are our own liberators, our own book. Uh, we talked about just now uh, being in, in this third, uh, third edition has just been uh, printed. Uh, we're all liberators. Uh, we talked about the issues of genocide and the international, uh, Spirit of Mandela, uh, International Tribunal and what that means. The United States has been charged and found guilty of five charges of genocide. What does that mean for for us in our struggle? And I talk about the, 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 the history of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army and why we have a history of resistance in this country against white supremacy and uh, capitalist imperialism. And so they don't want us to know these things. As I may mention earlier, you know, we are suffering from trauma. We, black people, brown people, indigenous people, and including white people. I would say white people is part of being traumatized by this bastardized uh, um, um, average uh, philosophy and uh, belief system of white supremacy. And so we have to engage in this struggle on a continuous level because it is harming us. It is killing us. White supremacy is killing us, right? And so we must be able to defend our, uh, ourselves on any, by, as Al Hasmik says, by any means necessary, as is the name of your program, by any means necessary. And so that was the message that I put forward uh, uh, yesterday. And it was, I guess, again, it was well-received by many. And, of course, the white-wingers and the conservatives and the Republicans and the, uh, uh, the law enforcement uh, opposed the idea that we, black people, brown people, indigenous people, will make an effort to free ourselves from their, um, their capacity to profit from our lives and or uh, uh, annihilate us, as the, as the international jurist has determined, the United States is engaged in the practice of genocide. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Brother Jalil, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the struggle for justice with the assassination of Burkina Faso revolutionary Thomas Sankara. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Aziz Fall, coordinator of the International Campaign for Justice for Sankara. Aziz, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Aziz, uh, here recently, a military tribunal has sentenced uh, former Burkina Faso president Blaise Campiore, uh, currently in exile, uh, to life in prison for his involvement in the 1987 assassination of Burkina B leader Thomas Sankara, who was a, a deeply uh, impactful person in that country's history. And uh, I'm just sort of wondering if you could sort of explain, first of all, how does Blaze get away with this for so long? It feels like there's a lot of important uh, history there as well. And, you know, uh, from someone who organizes and works around just this issue, what has the struggle been like to try to get some kind of semblance of justice for Sankara? Well, President Compaore and two of his uh, fellow members were uh, finally condemned to life sentences. Uh, For us, it had been already 25 years of our own life that has been given to this cause. So as you said, uh, we have started this process in 1997. This was barely almost 10 years before the prescription after the killing of Thomas Sankara and 12 other colleagues uh, that were shot on cold blood on October 15, 1987. And his death certificate was written in quite awkward words saying that he died of natural death. So during almost 10 years, uh, the then Minister of Justice, his best friend, Blaise Compaore, did nothing. He took power, supported by what we call France Afrique, which is a very cloudy network of French military and industrial complex um, people who have actually paralyzed most of the new colonial state. So he has been there, helped by the World Bank, by the downsizing of the state and the structural adjustment policies, and by the NATO forces in the sub-region, which have helped him become a kind of godfather for the region. So with a lot of arrogance, he managed to kill most of his opponents, managed to bribe a lot of uh, the judiciary and uh, also the leftist political parties in the sub-region, which has had really 
created a very difficult ambience for us to work. Despite of that, we launched an appeal and a lot of attorneys, lawyers have joined uh, our campaign. And that was a, a world premiere, actually, as you know, many head of state in Africa were killed. We have a long list of Pan-Africanist martyrs, you know, Patrice Lumumba, Cabral, Ben Barca, and so on. So Grilla, the Group for Research and Initiative for Liberation of Africa, started this case, and all these lawyers and international uh, human rights organizations have supported us through the years. So we exhausted all remedies in the country, have been, you know, on all the courts in the country during those 20 years. And then in 2003, we went to the Human Rights Commission at the UN, where uh, our communication was accepted. And we obtained in 2006 some rights for the widow, Mayam Sankara, who had the courage to launch this complaint, um, and also for her two sons. So from there, it was already a breach in the system, and the seeds of resistance also was uh, spreading in the youth and uh, thinkerist organization who start, you know, uh, resisting, and uh, that finally culminated with uh, an upheaval which got rid of uh, Blaise Comparoy, who was exfiltrated in Ivory Coast, a country that he has helped destabilize, as he has destabilized and benefited, you know, from the crisis in Sierra Leone and Liberia and become so wealthy. Anyway, so as he seek asylum, he was granted with citizenry as an Ivorian. Meanwhile, a very courageous judge uh, reopened the case, Judge Jamiogo. So that was in 2015, and from 2015 to October 11 of 2021, we had a lot of uh, processing uh, of the, the case. France has promised to send declassified document, which she did, but in a very selective way and dismissing key elements, which explained that when these trials started in October to 2021, uh, it was dejunct from the international case of uh, the trial, meaning that it was just judged as a local and national trial. The international trial should follow this one. So uh, the judge uh, refused the trial to be filmed. Uh, but despite of that, the trial happened in great condition. Both parts were allowed in total transparency to intervene. Most of the indicted people, the witnesses, uh, appeared, like 600 people, and we were involved in the trial during those past six months. A lot of things happened during this trial. I guess we don't have room to maneuver in here, but basically one very shocking thing happened was uh, a coup d'etat, a putsch happened, which overthrew the regime. Luckily, the military junta that is in power allowed the continuation of the trial. Judiciary, the military tribunal was quite independent. You must know that... Uh, Blaise Compaoré, along with other people, have contributed to the sabotage of 
the uh, so-called war on terror that had allowed jihadist force, fundamentalist Muslims force, along with some dissident Tuareg force in Mali, south of Algeria, Chad, uh, and Burkina Faso, to really jeopardize most of the you know, climax for such a trial. So these people have, in a way, created this situation of blackmail, uh, pushing Burkina Faso in situation of turmoil where you have like two million people who have been displaced, hundreds who have been killed. So this was not the real ambience to allow serenity for a trial. But despite of that, uh, we had this historic decision that... Uh, was yesterday uh, known from all this uh, long period of trial. Yeah, that really is an historic decision, and it is one that is definitely celebrated, uh, not just in Burkina Faso, I am sure, but it is celebrated here in the uh, United States among the uh, Pan-African community, um, certainly among the uh, anti-imperialist and Marxist community and throughout the diaspora. You know, Aziz, it's been 25 years to bring Campeore and the 12 other people involved in this assassination of uh, the man who was called uh, the Burkina Faso's Che Guevara to justice. He has Ivorian citizenship. He has basically, uh, Campeore, has basically created uh, the destabilization uh, that Sankara did, uh, you know, created such an an, uh, almost miraculous improvement of life and conditions, especially for poor and peasant class uh, Burkinabes, Campeore was able to undo all of that after the assassination of Sankara and has now, because of his own corruption and his own involvement with uh, the post-colonial forces in France and the international capitalists, have also helped to destabilize the rest of the countries in the region. So what is the likelihood that he will be brought back to Burkina Faso to actually carry out his sentence, him and the other two of his uh, uh, accomplices who are also found guilty. Will will uh, Burkinabe see him, uh, Blaise Campeore, in prison in, uh, in Burkina Faso? Well, you, you know, for almost uh, 33 years, he managed to undo, as you said, but he didn't manage to undo people's will, and people got rid of him. The very one who shouted in the street and who managed to, you know, push him out of power were wearing Sankara T-shirts and banners, and even though they were born or even not even born in the Sankara's period. Basically, it's just to say that, you know, uh, the resistance of the Pan-Africanist force is an African time. It's an African time. It's a long time. And, um, you know, when Thomas Sankara went to Washington, D.C., uh, he went to Harlem and said that this is where belong his White House. It's in the Black Harlem. And we wish um, to come back 
and speak on the very same place today. I know that some of these people are still alive. I have joined some like Bob Brown and many, many other folks who have helped us a long time ago. Just to say that the spirit of resistance all over the world, all these internationalists that have helped us know, and they know by heart, that in fact you cannot dismiss the resistance of the people. And this is exactly what had prevailed. Uh, it is actually the first um, it's a legal precedence against impunity that happened. It is the first in the killing of a head of state. You know, even John Fisher and Kennedy didn't have what Sankara had. And Sankara is not Che Guevara's African. Sankara is Sankara. They have um, been killed in almost the same age. You know, for us, uh, Cabral, Ben Barca, and Che Guevara belong to that generation of the three continental. And Sankara had admired all the three fellow secretary of the three continentals. And he had just followed their footprints trying to implement and and create this self-reliant development by doing those amazing transformation within a very short lapse of time, you know, nearly four years. And within four years, he managed really to destabilize the new colonial agenda of the region in a landlocked country. And I think this is the small legacy that allowed to uh, plant the seed that had actually blossomed in so many places uh, that allow us to speak about this today. So in a way, um, the likeliness that Compaore and folks uh, would be repatriated or arrested is um, depending on the shrinking of the France-Afrique network. So a country like Ivory Coast and Senegal and so on are the stronghold of such systems, but the system is crumbling. As you have seen in Mali, the Malian have cut their links with France. They are contemplating bilateral relations with Russia. And as you know, this Russia is actually in a very complex situation with the Western world. But it's just to say that the the land is changing, you know, the landscape is changing. So um, it is very important that the people who have been indicted um, be imprisoned, and most of them are. It is also very important that people who were involved in this plot, people like Charles Taylor, American spies who were exfiltrated in um, the region, through Libya, people in France, even though they are old, who have been involved, uh, people like Compaore and Cafando, who are now uh, burying their head on the sand in seeking asylum in neighboring countries with all the wealth they have stolen. All these people, you know, have been already judged by history. And whether they are uh, in prison or still hiding and running, running away from themselves, as Bob Marley is saying, all of this now is known by the people. So the truth has been almost revealed. Part of the truth is known today. Part of the justice is uh, finally allowed. And I think the family and the victim could now 
contemplate uh, a phase of reconciliation. Yeah, and in our last couple of minutes, Aziz, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, what do you think this could potentially mean for Burkina Faso? I mean, you were talking about some of the conditions in the country a little earlier, but I mean, this is, uh, you know, like a lot of countries, it's like a major sort of historical issue, a wrong, frankly, that uh, needed to be righted. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering how you sort of see it connected to conditions in Burkina Faso today. Well, again, as I said, um, this is a tremendous victory uh, for us. We are, you know, probably our shoulders are quite weak to really be able to support such a weight. But in a way, I'm sure that the wisdom of the country will ultimately prevail in a, in a sense, because even though people who are wealthy, people who have kept with blackmail the country today, with this jihadist situation, with uh, the lack of funding, you know, um, uh, exfiltrating all the money of the country and so on, all these people today have a chance, you know, to reconcile and to come back and to help the transition and genuine elections. So I hope that the judgment, you know, there will be another court appear appearance on um, April 13. Probably they will appeal from the decision. Uh, probably uh, Compare and other other will actually contest contest the constitutionality of the trial and even of the state. But uh, I think new conditions have arisen in this. So I hope it will help heal the wounds. Um, this is like the political legal battle. There is another economic battle, which is the battle for our sovereignty uh, on the industry extractive uh, mining sector on uh, self-reliance in agriculture, the place of the women and the youth towards employment and decision-making processes. So all of this is actually uh, now possible to address with such an important victory for Burkina Faso and the sub-region. And I think from all the people on the African-American community who have been so eager come back to Africa, their motherland, these are also new conditions appearing. After the fall of the apartheid system, I hope this is going to be another entry point, you know, to building a Pan-African state, and these are the steps we are fighting for. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Aziz, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about the rise of the far right in the United States and around the globe. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Mark Steiner, Peabody Award winning journalist and host of The Mark Steiner Show on The Real News Network. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, Mark, you all uh, over there on uh, the Mark Steiner show on the Real News Network have been uh, tracking the rise of the far right as a global phenomenon. And I know within the U.S. context, at least in recent history, the um, assault on the Capitol on uh, January 6th, uh, you know, is kind of uh, one example uh, of that. And I was just sort of wondering your estimation of what has spurred sort of what has encouraged or motivated, you think, the rise of the far right in the U.S. first? And what do you think that the ripple effects are around the world? Not that the U.S. is necessarily the center of it all, but I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing a, a, a similar trends happening across the globe. Well, I mean, let's take our country first, the United States. I mean, I think that um, what we both, first of all, Bill Fletcher is my partner in this. Uh, who's a noted journalist and writer and union activist and socialist. Um, and I were producing this series together. And we did a five-part series, and we're going to expand it. Having said that, um, so, look, the, the United States has always been a conservative nation, more to the right than any, anywhere else. We had certain periods that blossomed, you know, like we had re- the post-Civil War and Reconstruction. There was an era when there was a, 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 an inkling of hope we could build an interracial democracy, an inkling, and people fought for it and died for it. Then the far right took over, and I mean the far right. I mean the 90 years of, of, of segregation and violence against black people and, and native people in this country for 90 years, abject violence. Um, and then came the 1930s, and, you know, and, and another surge for 40 years where the left and, and liberals um, at different times pushed this country into a different direction, ended segregation. And now there's been this pushback for the last 50 years. And that pushback began in the 70s, where the right wing really wanted to retake power, seeing that um, too many communities of color, too many people who consider themselves liberal and or left um, were, were gaining power, and they wanted to destroy it. And they've done a pretty damn good job of it. And I think that's the roots of our modern dilemma in this country is the pushback against everything people fought for uh, in the civil rights and union movements in this country and the anti-war movements. And so I think we're, we're in the midst of a, a major struggle. And at the moment, the right has the upper hand. Uh, we, I don't think we can let them win, but the right has the upper hand. Yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's very often, uh, Mark, a, 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 an observation of the right forces in this country, especially politically, where it seems like they seem to be frequently just really well organized. Doesn't mean that their message is right. Doesn't mean that, you know, they are doing anything uh, good for the people, but they are able to seize on the idea of populism and use it uh, in a way politically that that benefits them. And this is something that maybe the left is not always as good at. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about the way mm-hmm. the right is able to organize uh, politically? And then that ushers in, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the worst far right elements 
that were always in their midst and they always knew they were in their midst. And and kind of the response that doesn't seem to be as coordinated or well organized on the left. Oh, that's a really heavy question. And I think that I think um first of all, I, I always posit and we can this can be discussed and debated, I always posit that that the right wing learn their tactics from us. The left in this country, especially in the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, was where the organizing was was a theory and practice of organizing was really developed. Um and we lost it for numerous reasons. And I think we lost it for numerous reasons because you know, you can argue whether people should be inside or outside the Democratic Party. That's a, that's, a, that's a discussion on its own. But I think that what happened is people got subsumed into that so deeply that we lost our roots and forgot how to organize and fight. The right understood what we did, and they did exactly what we did. They started organizing on the ground. They started organizing in town and city councils. They started organizing by going after certain political positions. And that dovetailed dangerously with the growth of of uh, of, of right wing militias um, that that have bolstered that across the country, uh, and the right wing is highly armed in this country and um, has seeped itself into m- many of the combat units in the in the armed services. As my two grandsons, who two of my grandsons are in the United States Army, um, and. They say that. They say to me that, you know, if you're in a combat unit, these guys are all to the right of Attila the Hun, my one grandson said. And then you get to what we're in, and it's the exact opposite. And so I think that there's a real danger here of what we're facing, and they were organized effectively from the top down in the early 70s. And over these last 50 years, they've actually been able to seize power and push back against everything that was fought for. I don't know if that answered your question, Jackie, or not. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, you're, you're pointing out something that I think is important. This um, insidious tactic of the right uh, to, you know, seize upon uh, anxieties and frustrations of elements of the working class and then use that as a springboard to sort of inject their sort of racist, reactionary, anti-immigrant, uh, sexist, just the overall uh, bigoted and reactionary politics into the mix. Uh, but like you say, I mean, it appears as though these elements are uh, doing what, you know, left and progressive uh, uh, forces in this country used to do uh, uh, some time ago. And another thing I'm wondering, Mark, is, uh, and maybe this is an aside, but I wonder about sort of the role of war in the rise of the right, right? Because in the sense that I feel like a lot of times, like if you take the U.S., right, and it's many conflicts and wars that it's uh, involved in either directly and indirectly all across this uh, world for years and years now, I I feel like, you know, these wars destabilize countries and create migrant flows and migrant flows can sometimes intensify or exacerbate um, economic pressures in their, you know, uh, new uh, uh, country. And that then uh, provides an opportunity for some of these same far right elements to point to the new immigrants, for instance, and say, well, it's these it's this invading horde of people from this country. And, you know, they're Muslims, they're African, they're Arab, they're South Asian or what have you. And they're the reason why your um, conditions have gotten worse. And the government is, you know, purposefully 
uh, doing this or whatever. I mean, it, it's this kind of conspiratorial thing, but it, I mean, there's a note of truth of, of truth of it only in the sense that uh, people's material conditions on the one hand are not being met. And also uh, uh, the role of how war can drive a lot of this, I think, is often left out as well. So, I mean, I was more so sort of wondering your, your thoughts about that and how we sort of see this you know, this military industrial complex issue as, frankly, uh, uh, worsening the situation about the rise of the right. I, that, I think that's an interesting perspective. I mean, I think that that, that you, that first of all, I go back again to, our, to the roots of the United States itself. Um, we have always opposed immigrants. We've always acted like we welcome immigrants and opposed immigration at the same time. And that we had that duality. And I, and I think that much of it's driven by racism. Um, and I think that, yeah, and, and, and the wars, especially of this 20th and 21st century, um, have created the destruction of so many other societies that have led to this mass emigration, um, you know, from North Africa to Europe, from, from, from our policies in Latin America, U.S. policies in Latin America that destroyed the structures of societies all through Latin America that have led to this, to this emigrant push to the borders of Mexico because people's lives have been destroyed. So there's a direct connection between the wars that we have encouraged, what we did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, especially 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Let me take that for first. I'll take it back to the 30s if I want to. When it comes to certain nations in Latin America, and we've, and we've created um, uh, this whirlwind of disaster that has forced people north. And I think um, the same thing is going on in the mother continent, in Africa itself at the moment. And, and, and so I think that does play a, a huge role in it. And it's, and the, and the xenophobic racism is part of the DNA of this nation. And I say that in the sense that I look at it in a real dialectical way. I mean, there, there are many, there are many powerful parts about the roots of this nation when it comes to, um, the symbolic, uh, power of uh, democratic thought and movements. Uh, and revolutions. On the other hand, the negative aspects of this xenophobic racism that exists in this country, um, that comes from this colonialist mentality, that have led to this, that led to the, the, that 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 become anti-immigrant and feed these right-wing populist movements. I mean, populism can be right or left, and in our country, for the most part, it's been right, not completely, but for the most part. I mean, the Wobblies were populists, you know. I mean. But I think that, that that war and our instigating wars across the across the world have pushed people out, and then and then fed, as I said earlier, this kind of xenophobic racism that is at the heart of this country. I mean, look, let me just finish with this: when my father's parents came to this country, they were from the Polish-Ukrainian border um, and fled anti-Semitism and pogroms. And my grandmother witnessed her little sister's head being chopped off, and they so they fled to this country. Um, and Moss. Uh, and when they got here, they were, they were not, they were not thought of as white people. Not until my father's generation <laughs> did they get that. You know, I'm seeing so this country is, is roots around racism are deep. Oh, without question. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary.
Things Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, April 7th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our rapid is our standing by. You can also check us out streaming live on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. And you can download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. But wherever you are in this world and however you hit us up, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. At the top of the hour today, the United Nations General Assembly suspended Russia from the U.N. Human Rights Council uh, concerning reports of what they call, quote, gross and systematic violations and abuses of human rights involving the War in Ukraine. And this uh, effort, of course, led by the United States, got uh, 93 votes in favor with 24 countries voting no and 58 abstaining. And after the vote, uh, Russia's deputy ambassador to the United Nations, Jenny Kuzmin, uh, said that the whole move was uh, a, quote, illegitimate and politically motivated step and, and announced that the Russia would uh, was actually going to quit the Human Rights Council. And uh, worth noting, I think uh, uh, Cuba's permanent representative to the United Nations, Pedro Luis Pedroso Cuesta, uh, said, quote, it is Russia today, but tomorrow it could be any of our countries, especially nations of the South, which do not support the interest of domination. He pointed out how the U.S. likely won't be suspended for its more than 60-year blockade of Cuba, along with many other crimes, and noted the ironic fact that the U.S. actually opposed even establishing the Human Rights Council. So isn't that a funny thing? Also, uh, today, the Senate confirmed uh, Judge Ketanji Brown to the Supreme Court, making her the first black woman to hold that distinction. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Gabriel Rockhill, an organizer, founding director of the Critical Theory Workshop and professor of philosophy at Villanova University. Dr. Rockhill, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Dr. Rockhill, Speaking of uh, the war in Ukraine, one of the most controversial, I think, aspects of this whole situation is the presence of neo-Nazi and other fascist organizations and ultra-nationalist elements within the Ukraine military and the police. And, you know, I've noted on the show before about how there seems to have been a kind of evolution in terms of uh, the mainstream narrative around Nazis. Because to me, first, it seems like we saw just outright denials. And then secondly, it was this sort of begrudging acknowledgement that, yes, there were Nazis there in Ukraine, but they don't really hold that much 
you know, power, influence, or what have you. And now it, it, we seem to have reached a point where people are like, yeah, there are Nazis, but so what? Like almost like a revisionist uh, uh, kind of deal uh, of even looking at it that I think is downright frightening considering who it is that we're talking about. And you recently published a, a really good piece about this. I really recommend people uh, check out at uh, liberationnews.org entitled Nazis in Ukraine, seeing through the fog of the information war. And, you know, like a lot of people, we've been pointing out um, about how the U.S. backed the Maidan coup in 2014, uh, which sort of, you know, helped to cement some of these elements within these different aspects of the Ukrainian state. But based on um, what you wrote in this uh, piece, Dr. Hill, the U.S. seems to have been actively cultivating and facilitating fascist elements in Ukraine for the better part of a century. And so I think there's a connection there and also sort of between the kind of overall history of Nazism in Ukraine. So to begin, I was hoping you could tell us some about the sort of history of Nazi ideology in Ukraine and where the U.S. comes in? That's a great question, Sean. You know, one of the most difficult things, I think, for people in the Western world, and particularly within the United States, to understand is this deeper history of the relationship between the United States government and Nazism and fascism more generally, in large part because when the United States did end up, after delaying for quite some time entering World War II, it didn't enter on the side of the Nazis. It entered on the side of the Soviet Union, which is, of course, socialist at that point in time. And after the eventual defeat of the Nazis by the Red Army, the United States has been running an incredible information and a propaganda campaign for decades and decades and decades that basically presents the United States as a freedom-loving democracy opposed to Nazism and fascism, and that the proof thereof is, of course, that we supposedly defeated the Nazis in World War II. And, of course, we could add just the sheer number of films and TV shows and cultural products that hammer this point home on a daily basis, really. And the problem with those narratives is, you know, perhaps first and foremost, that there were many members of the political elite and the capitalist ruling class within the United States who admired the Nazis and the fascists, uh, were considering supporting them instead of the Soviet Union and the Allied forces in the war. There are a whole series of rather complex contradictions that led to the fact that the United States entered the war when it did and how it did. And if we just leave those aside for at least a moment, we could return to them if you like. The uh, one of the important things I think to, to understand is that there was both this reticence prior to World War II and then during World War II and in the wake of World War II, the U.S. national security state really bent over backwards to protect fascists and Nazis and reintegrate them into the governments in 
uh, places like Western Europe, Italy, Japan, etc., but also brought an inordinate number of them to the United States. Uh, Eric Lichtlau has estimated about 10,000 Nazis were brought to U.S. soil in the wake of World War II, and that's not counting the Italian fascists and other fascist collaborators. And so if we actually dig into the archive, which, of course, most people, when they're binging on Netflix or going to the movies, might not have time to do, we actually find a very well-documented history of U.S. collaboration with Nazis and fascists that functions internationally. And one of the kind of sister companion pieces to the article that you just referenced is an article I wrote a few years ago called The United States Didn't Defeat Nazi or Fascism in World War II. It discreetly internationalized it. And I go into some of the details in that regard. And the U- Ukraine has played a really important role in that regard because, of course, when the Nazis marched into the Soviet Union, and this was a, one of the primary goals that Hitler outlined for the Nazi war machine was to destroy the Soviet Union and what he referred to as the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy that was going to basically eliminate Western civilization, capitalism, Christianity, the Aryan race, and all of that. And in marching into into Ukraine, one of the important historical events that occurred is that a lot of the core Ukrainian nationalist groups that were anti-Soviet allied themselves with the Nazi regime and so participated directly in the Holocaust and in some of the genocidal elimination of the Ukrainian population. And in the wake of World War II, the U.S. national security state protected a lot of these figures, including Stepan Bandera, who was the leader of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, a well-known Nazi collaborator organization, and his uh, the head of the intelligence services for the same organization. They were protected by the U.S. national security state. Why were they protected? Well, because they were good at fighting communists, and they were therefore redeployed. um, Well, members of this organization, the OUN, were redeployed in this international world war on, on communism. And so there's more that I could say, but that's a kind of big picture framing to get us started. Yeah, I mean, that big picture framing is really, really important, Dr. Rockhill. Particularly when we hear uh, Volodymyr Zelensky say things like there should be Nuremberg-like trials for Russian war crimes, when in the context of the fact that uh, the Ukrainian Nazi collaborators and sympathizers were not included in the original Nuremberg trials, if I'm not mistaken, Yes, the Nuremberg trials did um, take place and Nazis in Germany were uh, tried. Some were convicted, some were sentenced to death. But the collaborators and the neo-Nazis or the Nazis at the time in Ukraine were excluded from these Nuremberg trials. So it's, it's really quite fascinating, I think, to see the lack of historical knowledge, just basic knowledge of history that so many people in this country have. And that, that's not really a dig on, on them. I think it's more of an indictment of the education system in this country and the, the cradle-to-grave propaganda that we do get from, you know, even those Hollywood movies that Sean talked about earlier um, you know, romanticizing uh, the U.S. role in World War II and fighting fascism. But I mean, it, I, I have a feeling 
that people like Zelensky and others do know more of this history. And I, I mean, I'm not in their mind, but I just feel like this is such a, a, a cynical ploy to play on the lack of understanding of history that so many people have, that they'll just respond emotionally to and just say, yeah, let's try Russia for war crimes like Nuremberg, while like the grandchildren of the uh, Ukrainian neo-Nazis and, and you know their supporters continue to carry out their crimes, Dr. Rocket. Those are such important points, Jackie, because, you know, unfortunately, the U.S. population and for that matter, the global population that's plugged into the PR machine that's run out of the United States has been subjected to just decades and decades of the most, you know, some of the most powerful propaganda. Uh, one of the things that's, under, I think, really important to understand about propaganda is that the most successful forms of propaganda are those that are invisible qua propaganda. And that the U.S. national security state has been very, very deeply involved in precisely this propaganda machine. And so most people's understanding of the history of Nazism, for instance, comes more honestly from movies, TV, video games, social media, um, and corporate press, as opposed to from a real deep understanding and knowledge based on study. And we know that the Department of Defense and the Central Intelligence Agency have been involved in creating some 2,000 screen products, right, the, meaning TV shows and, and, and movies, and that they have really managed this understanding of history. In fact, if you'll allow me, I'll just quote the uh, acting general counsel of the CIA, John Rizzo, who in 2014, he wrote, quote, the CIA has long had a special relationship with the entertainment industry, devoting considerable attention to fostering relationships with Hollywood movers and shakers, studio executives, producers, directors, big name actors, etc. And there's an excellent book called National Security Cinema that goes into a lot of these details and highlights the some 2,000 you know, screen products that I mentioned a moment ago. And so if if we pull back from this unfortunately, you know, unfortunate understanding of history that's largely a result of propaganda and look at what actually happened in World War II, there's a number of important things. It's the Soviet Union that was actually pushing to have the high Nazi leadership put on trial. The United States wasn't particularly interested in trials because they, they, well, for two reasons. One is that they thought that they should just eliminate, you know, some of the leadership. And the other is that they wanted to recuperate some of that leadership for their own ends. And so the Soviet Union insisted on there needing to be public trials because that way there was a democratic process and that that democratic process could be transparent. And what went down at Nuremberg, you know, when you compare the sheer number of Nazi supporters, including those who financed the Nazis, of course, which is big capital, big industrial capital in particular, and this was, in, you know, international industrial capital, not just in Germany, but also in the United States. Uh, so many of those who were involved, both at the level of leadership within the Nazi party and then also the financial backers and others who aided and abetted the rise of the Nazis, weren't put on trial, and an inordinate number of them were protected by the OSS, which is the predecessor organization to the CIA, and they were either brought to the United States in operations like Operation Paperclip that brought some 1,600 Nazis to, the U to U.S. soil, or they were given free passage elsewhere in the world through the various rat lines that were set up, including, of course, perhaps most notoriously to Latin America, where they then played central roles in Project Condor and other such things. And so we have to recontextualize all of this and then understand in relationship to the contemporary situation in, in Ukraine, 
of course, we need a very complex analysis, and we should never just have flat-footed accounts that say, well, Ukraine is all Nazi, or Ukraine is just a democracy, or other such things. We have to look at the details of the situation. And we do have uh, President Zelensky, who has worked with aided and abetted Nazi forces, in particular battalions such as the Azov Regiment, which is the largest one and goes well beyond just the military battalion. It's what some uh, analysts have referred to as a state within a state because they have a publishing house, they run training camps for kids, they do other such things. So it's a much broader project than just that. But there are some 30 uh, militias operative in the in, in Ukraine, many of which either self-identify as fascists or I think could be more or less objectively identified as, you know, semi-fascist, proto-fascist, or just full-out fascist. And so that larger perspective, I think, needs to be brought to bear on, on contemporary Ukraine because it's not the case at all that Ukraine is just a democracy that is defending itself. There's been a very intense war waged in eastern Ukraine since 2014 against the Russian separatists that's been mainly driven by these Nazi and fascist battalions. And the Zelensky government has been working hand in glove with these battalions. In fact, uh, in 2014, the Azov battalion was integrated into the the Ukrainian National Guard. And Zelensky's major corporate backer, his biggest financier, a man by the name of Ihor Kolomyovsky, is also one of the biggest backers of the Azov battalion and some of these other fascist battalions. And so we also have to see the larger architecture of how uh, fascism operates as a social phenomenon. It's not, you know, it's never just the, how to put it, the the stormtroopers on the ground. We also have to look at the financial backers and the people who are arming and supporting them from behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you breaking that down, um, Dr. Rockhill, because, you know, there's a a take that I I see amongst some uh, left-leaning people here in the United States, um, you know, in an attempt to highlight the uh, fact that, you know, these Nazi and fascist elements um, exist with, within Ukraine and really probably more so out of a response to this kind of uh, mainstream uh, liberal denial of it. But, th- I mean, the, the analysis of it says that, you know, Ukraine is basically a fascist state. And I just don't think that's uh, accurate, you know, uh, uh, taken off uh, uh, what you just said there. Uh, I fundamentally uh, just don't think that's the case. And also uh, something I think that I should name is that, you know, to to highlight this dynamic in this history, which is completely relevant to what we're seeing happening in Ukraine right now, that doesn't imply to me support for the invasion itself. And see this, it's so important that we sort of stay on top of this and continue to deepen our understanding so we can have that complex, truly nuanced sort of view on things that you were uh, discussing, Dr. Rockhill, particularly for those of us here in the United States, it isn't necessary or advisable to simply toe the line uh, uh, of a country simply because it is under attack by the United States. Uh, it's more of an issue, I think, of uh, being uh, principled and understanding about how our duty is to hold this government accountable for its involvement. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Gabriel Rockhill. And, you know, Dr. Rockhill, a moment ago you were talking about, you know, the role of movies and, and entertainment and cultural production, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in the sort of spreading of <laughs> imperialism and fascism and things like that in general. But I feel like we've seen that pop up already, even with um, this war in Ukraine that's only been going on about a month or so. And I'm thinking specifically of how Volodymyr Zelensky gave a speech at the Grammys, which is, you know, one of, uh, if not the sort of largest uh, award shows in the United States. I'm not I'm actually not sure of its stature outside the U.S., but even still, it's a big uh, a cultural deal, at least for some. Personally, I find award shows horribly boring. But I wonder what you make of that, doctor. And I, I, we had a guest the other day. I forget who it was, but they made the point that, you know, Muammar Gaddafi never got to make a speech. Um, in front of uh, the Grammys or, you know, n- n- no leader that has been deposed or, or assassinated or all these things at the behest of Washington was able to have that kind of audience and uh, uh, and have that access to the popular consciousness of the American people. So where do you see uh, the role of that kind of, I mean, frankly, like a, a Hollywood image making? And how that plays into this geopolitical question that has some serious implications, not just for the U.S., not just for Russia, not just for Ukraine, but potentially for humanity. Great question, Sean. You know, when the United States goes to war or wants to go to war or supports wars, one of the really central driving forces is the information war that it's involved in. And there is an entire web of what some people call the PR propaganda complex. These are public relations firms, uh, obviously assets within the world of journalism, but also the cultural world and the the kind of media more broadly construed that are uh, put in the service of pushing a very, very clear message and kind of beating people over the head with it. And there's an inordinate amount of money, resources, and power that's put into, you know, what we call an information war. Ultimately, it's a psychological war. It's a psy war on uh, that is aimed really at trying to convince people of a very simple narrative that is that the Zelensky government is innocent, free, and democratic, and that Putin is this Hitler-like, uh, you know, creature who has decided to just destroy Ukraine, and therefore what we need is more war, right? And let me, actually, I'd like to second exactly what you said before the break, and that is that everything that I'm saying is not at all to say that Putin's intervention in Ukraine is is justified or that we should support it, or that uh, even for that matter, that one of the asserted justifications that he has for the military intervention, that is denazification, that we should just take that at at face value, right? I think that there are a lot of other things that are going on there, and we need, as you are advocating for, a much more complex apprehension of that. And, you know, one thing that's helpful, I think, 
in the moments of conflagration like the one that we're currently seeing in Ukraine is to look back at history. Because right now we're so subjected to the information war, it's hard to see the kind of wizard behind the curtain and the forces that are driving this. You know, in my own research, I've looked into how uh, the Rendon Group or Burstyn Marsteller or these other enormous public relations firms work hand in glove with the U.S. government. And there's really no decision that is made and no public pronouncements that are made that aren't vetted by a lot of these uh, big public relations conglomerates. And they oversee international relations as well. Just to give your listeners one example, you know, we now know that the CIA paid $23 million to the Rendon Group to create anti-Saddam propaganda after the first invasion. Right. And so that, I think, should clue us into some of what is most likely going on now. And that is that these propaganda machines are, are really revving up the entire cultural apparatus to try to get people on board for more war. And we should be crystal clear about what the agenda is. The agenda is not less war in Ukraine. The agenda is more war. And so the position that I'm taking and that I would encourage others to take is we do not need more war. We need we need peace. And uh, in order to have that, we also have to uh, be able to identify the kind of complex situations that are there on the ground. And I thought it was also really important that you foregrounded for your listeners that what I'm saying here is not that Ukraine is fascist or that fascism saturates every aspect of Ukrainian life, not by any stretch of the imagination. There are different forms of fascism that manifest themselves militarily, symbolically, culturally. Uh, in the parliament, there's very small representation. In fact, the, in the latest election, the right-wing coalition wasn't even able to garner the 5% necessary to have parliamentary representation, right? So if we look at the parliament, it's not very fascist at all. So we really have to do this more fine-grained analysis while also recognizing that those fascist battalions and the kind of cultural fascism that's operative in Ukraine, while some of that is relatively small— it can be unbelievably powerful and make an enormous difference in the kind of class struggle that's going on. And so smallness doesn't necessarily equate with uh, a lack of uh, effectiveness, right? And so we just have to see that and connect the dots as well between how liberal democracies, right? We could think of Ukraine, but we could also think of the United States, are not somehow absolutely recalcitrant to fascist forces. On the contrary, they often use fascist forces in various ways to get their dirty work done and to outsource some of the violence of the state. You know, we've seen this in the history of the United States with the KKK and other such organizations that function as kind of vigilante militias that the state allows to act so that the state can preserve its image as being a liberal democracy and uh, nonetheless police and uh, not only discipline, but even kill and eliminate certain sectors of the population that they want to get rid of. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so glad that we have these conversations and we are able to provide this really important historical context and the connection to what is going on today. Because I look at the way people in other countries who have been impacted by the same history are responding to this whole mess and, and, uh, the the what do I want to call it the um, rehabilitation of these neo Nazis that Zelensky is actually in on. I mean I I've been loath to to indict him as being you know just as complicit as in this as the U S as I understand that he's you know between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> I mean that it's not like he really has a choice in what he can do. However. I mean, Dr. Rockhill, he did not have to appear uh, at a speech in Greece 
with a member of the Azov Battalion, the neo nazi He didn't have to do that, but he did. And of course, uh, Greece, the people in Greece uh, were obviously angry. He, he made the speech in the Greek parliament. And I think at this point, how do we respond to Zelensky's role in this, right? Because of course we don't want to paint him as much of a collaborator as you know others clearly are. And of course we're being careful because we don't want to be painted as anti-Semitic because he is of Jewish heritage. But at this point, it's clear that he knows who these people are. He's always known. And he is willingly going around to the parliaments of other countries with these fascist neo-Nazis. I mean, Dr. Rockhill, at what point do we just make Vlad, uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky as guilty in this whole mess as the U.S., the EU, and NATO are? It's a, it's a good question. And, and of course, we have to be balanced in our judgments and look at all of the different factors. And I think, as you kind of pointed out, there is a way in which Zelensky is operating in relationship to a series of forces in Ukraine and internationally that give him a small margin of maneuver. Uh, one element that's important I mentioned a moment ago is that Ihor Kolomyovsky is his single biggest financial backer. And in fact, you know, uh, when he was running for president, he traveled some 14 times basically to where Kolomyovsky is based. And so there seems to be a very, very close tie between Kolomyovsky and Zelensky. And they also have a number of financial ties, as we learned from the Pandora Papers. And Kolomyovsky also supports the Azov and uh, Adar battalions, and as well as one of the battalions, the Dinapro battalion, he spent some $10 million, $10 million uh, in support of them. And so behind Zelensky, you have the reactionary elements of the capitalist ruling class that are intent on using these fascist forces in order to destroy the Russian separatist movement in the East and that have such close ties with Zelensky that they've more or less made Zelensky. You know, Zelensky was an actor who played a kind of common man who ran for president and became president of Ukraine on an anti-corruption ticket on a TV show. And the TV show was run on a TV, show, uh, a TV channel that Kolomyotsky has an ownership share in, right? So he's also part of the kind of propaganda complex controlled by the capitalist ruling class that we were just talking about. And so I think you have to see all of these complex elements. And another part of this puzzle is that Zelensky has supported the kind of symbolic shift of, of backing cultural fascism within Ukraine, rehabilitating many of the Nazi collaborators of Ukraine's past, such as Stepan Bandera, whom we talked about a little while ago, who, you know, uh, Zelensky's on record is saying something like, you know, Bandera is uh, a hero for some people in Ukraine. And, you know, that's cool because he's one of those who defended freedom in Ukraine. And Zelensky's done a number of other uh, symbolic acts that really have shored up the entitlement of the more Nazi-leaning and fascist-leaning elements within the country. He also hasn't, you know, Ukraine was one of 
It was one of the only countries, along with the United States, that voted against the U.N. General Assembly's draft resolution that basically said that the glorification of Nazism should be verboten, you know, it should be outlawed. And so there's a lot of ways in which there's a cultural fascism in Ukraine that Zelensky is, is fine with and hasn't shown any outward signs of really cracking down on in, in any you know, serious way. And so I think we have to look at all of these different elements in order to have a more complex analysis. And, you know, that doesn't mean that then Zelensky is just a fascist or an authoritarian dictator or other such things. You know, he was elected. He came to power through the ballot box. There are other measures that people could point to that are not you know, as in line with the ways in which he's aided and embedded cultural fascism. One final element that I will point out, though, is that there's been a lot of pressure on him to revoke the anti-communization laws that have been passed in Ukraine. And these are laws that basically condemn the communist, uh, the USSR, as totalitarian and forbid the celebration of anything related to Soviet culture and Soviet history. They make it a criminal offense to do so. And it also, these laws recognize these ultranationalist groups that were Nazi collaborator groups as quote-unquote independent fighters. And it's now a criminal offense to question the legitimacy of their actions. And so again, Zelensky on that front could back off on these anti-communization laws and hasn't done that. So you know, again, a complex scenario where we have to look at all of the different factors and recognize that Zelensky is at a minimum aiding and abetting both the military aspects of fascism, the you know militias and whatnot, and also this cultural or symbolic forms of fascism. Yeah, totally. And that's important to note because, uh, you know, people have been using this sort of very shallow analysis to basically say, well, Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish, therefore all this talk about Nazis is just uh, uh, foolish. But when we get deeper into it and sort of a look into the reality, as you just laid out there, doctor, I, I think sort of uh, uh, the true picture starts to uh, become clear. And, you know, I'm also wondering, how are you sort of viewing things at this point in terms of uh, what we're seeing with this recent, uh, the incident in Bucha, I'm stumbling and fumbling here, but the, but the issue in Bucha that, that's being framed by the U.S. and the West as um, a kind of massacre that happened at the, ex, uh, at the hands of Russian troops and all these sorts of things that, of course, you know, the, the Russian government denies and all these sorts of things. I mean, obviously, you know, we at this moment don't know any more than, than anyone else about that. I tend to feel like uh, this is something that is more than worthy of sort of a real um, sort of independent investigation. I, I can't help but think that, you know, the, the, the EU and the U.S., if they were sort of involved in it, I mean, you know, obviously those are interested parties in sort of uh, uh, their own ways. But even in terms of the, the timeline, as we understand it and the way things were uh, uh, supposedly playing out, it's, you know, to me, one of uh, the most, I think, striking uh, propaganda issues that we've seen in this conflict so far uh, uh, to the extent of how deep everything goes. And very obviously something uh, uh, happened here. And, uh, you know, we've seen images of purported to be mass graves and all those sorts of things. And it uh, the, 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 the fog of war is quite thick, to say uh, the very least, Dr. Rockhill. And so my question to you is, how then can an American people 
so deeply propagandized even begin to really uh, uh, make heads or tails of what uh, is happening here when, I mean, the manipulation is so deep. I mean, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky is almost like uh, America's sweetheart at this point. I mean, it, it's kind of odd. I mean, you know, some people take it really far. It reminds me of, you know, the people who are all about Andrew Cuomo and saying they were Cuomo sexuals. Like people are talking about their crushes on Zelensky and stuff. It's just odd to me. It's odd in general when people like fetishize these elected officials. But uh, in any sense, you know, the, the thickness of the fog of war, I don't think is accidental. It, to me, it, it seems uh, purposeful. And when the stakes are so high for uh, humanity, Dr. Rockhill, it just seems that uh, something that's always been issued takes on an even more sort of troubling character. You know what I mean? This is one of the reasons, Sean, why it's really so important that we engage in historical analysis and systemic analysis, that we train ourselves because the wider culture and our educational institutions, unfortunately, do not train us to have a deep historical perspective that connects the dots so we see the entire social and economic system and don't only focus on the kind of things that we're trained to focus on given how disciplines are different within, you know, universities and colleges. And, and also there's such a parochialism in the United States because people don't know anything about international politics or international history. So we have to work collectively to train ourselves to be able to do that because if you're simply, you know, somebody who suddenly turns into the news on Ukraine right now, I think it's pretty clear that you're going to be given an IV with the Kool-Aid straight from the PR propaganda complex, and you're not going to understand what's going on. If you do have these historical reference points in a systemic analysis, you can abstract from the immediacy of the propaganda campaign and begin to identify patterns because those patterns are ones that we've seen in past instances. And once you see those patterns, you can begin to anticipate and see the kind of broader picture of some of the things that are going on. And so, for instance, just coming back to what you said about this talking point that there can't be any fascism or Nazism within Ukraine because Zelensky is Jewish, you know, Kolomyowski, who funds Zelensky, he was his biggest funder and supporter, is also Jewish. Right. Also is one of the biggest supporters of the Azov and IDAR battalion. Mm -hmm. One of the leaders of the Azov battalion is on record saying that, well, we probably have 10 or 20 percent Nazis in the battalion, meaning that the rest of the battalion, they're, you know, at a minimum, Nazi collaborators, and they clearly identify as, as, as fascist, ultra-nationalist, pro-capitalist, anti-socialist, etc. And so, we can't get caught up on thinking that fascism and Nazism is reducible to anti-Semitism because as well, the way fascism operates is the broader pattern is driven by socioeconomic forces. And if you know anything about the history of fascism, there were fascist movements in every capitalist country, yes, capitalist country, in the wake of the Great Depression. And those movements were funded by the capitalist ruling class and the reactionary elements within the capitalist ruling class that felt under threat. And so capitalism in decline will often mobilize financial resources to put shock troops on the ground in order to discipline and kill those who are interested in introducing a different socioeconomic system, namely socialism. And so fascism in its history will use different scapegoats. And of course, the Jews, and more specifically, the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy has been one of the primary targets of Nazism in particular and other forms of fascism. But there are many other scapegoats that have been mobilized 
right? And those scapegoats can be different religions, different uh, ethnic groups. It can be Roma. It can be uh, racial groups, you know, the targeting of blacks within the United States, lots of other examples. And so then finally, I guess coming to the situation in Buka, of course, there's so much that we don't know right now. And what I would recommend is a very healthy dose of skepticism regarding the mainstream narrative and an ongoing vigilance and investigation into what exactly is going on. It does seem that Russian troops had pulled out. And we now know as well that there were, uh, in particular, I point your readers and viewers to the case of Sergei Korotkik. Um, who also goes by the name of Butsen, who is a well-known Nazi butcher and who bragged about killing civilians as he was going into Bucha. And there's some interesting investigative journalism that has suggested that he and potentially others in his battalion were involved in some of this slaughter and that what's going on is a kind of false flag operation which is being uh, you know, blamed on the Russians. I'm not coming down on that. I don't know. I'm too far from you know, things on the ground. But I do know that false flag operations have occurred in the past. They've been very well orchestrated in various ways, and they should encourage all of us to be skeptical and highly vigilant. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Gabriel Rockhill is here. And Dr. Rockhill, my next question is... Why are there elements of the ruling class that support and facilitate fascism, right? We were just talking about Zelensky's main funder, also Jewish, also a main supporter of straight-up Nazi uh, paramilitary groups like the Azov Battalion, which is, you know, mind-blowing on its face. But I feel like that's just sort of an example of something that helps us realize the class character of what is sort of unfolding before our eyes. And so it's a huge question, I know. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, it's not the first time we've seen such a thing throughout uh, uh, history. And so why would these elements of the ruling class support these types of uh, uh, groups, even when, if, you know, given the opportunity, you know, those weapons that these reactionary elements have could very well be turned on them? It's a great question. You know, if we just take it from a kind of big picture point of view, I would say that, you know, capitalism historically has functioned in terms of at least two modes of governance that it will use in order to guarantee that the social relations of of capitalism are perpetuated. One is liberal democracy, in which you rule by consent because you get the population on board with convincing them that they have certain rights and forms of representation and whatnot. And in many ways, that is less costly, uh, at least 
in certain situations than the other way of ensuring and guaranteeing capitalist social relations, and that is through a kind of repressive assault on the population. And that can take the form of, you know, state-driven repression, but historically, it's also been the case that there's often been a reliance on what people call parastate forces or forces that operate parallel to the state but aren't the state itself. So it's not armies, police, etc. Instead, they're private militias and vigilantes and other such things. And that the capitalist ruling class will often kind of toggle back and forth. And there's also division within the capitalist ruling class, depending on how they would most like to rule in certain situations. And so you can trace, it depends on how broad we want to understand fascism, but of course there were fascistic elements in the deep history of colonialism when repressive force was unleashed on the world in order to impose capitalist social relations. But there were also in many cases then liberal democracies that were set up in order to govern part of the population by consent. And so if we have that big picture overview, when you look at what some people call, you know, modern fascism or the fascism from the interwar period to the present. Why is it that the capitalist ruling class would decide in favor of fascism instead of liberal democracy? There's, this is a complex, you know, situation, but one of the clear elements is when capitalism itself becomes under threat and governance by consent no longer allows the ruling class to accumulate at the level that they would like to accumulate. And one of the reasons for that can be that class struggle from below is such that it makes it unmanageable for the capitalists above. And so they reach out to fund and support these militias, these vigilantes and other such things in order to attack the labor movement, socialists, etc. Um, and it can also take place, you know, shifts to fascism when there are you know, modes or, or moments of economic depression. And the capitalists are not able to uh, to make the profits that they you know need and, and want to make. And so they'll actually fund and support shifts to the far right that will also play into the uh, the the permanent war economy and to forms of warfare that are highly profitable, particularly to big capital and big industrial capital, right? That's what we saw in large part in, in Nazi Germany. So I would say, you know, in a nutshell, it has to do with in the minds of the capitalist ruling class, could we increase our profits by going fascist or could we shore up a withering away capitalist system and a decaying capitalist system by relying on these militias and external forces. And that, you know, these decisions also lead to conflicts. And I think conflicts that we can map out and, and have been able to map out historically where some of the capitalist ruling class in the United States during the Nazi rise to power were very supportive. Like, look at Henry Ford. He was a great supporter of, of Hitler, you know, sold basically uh, the a lot of material to, to the Nazis and financially supported the Nazis, right? So he was on that end of the spectrum, but there were other members of the capitalist ruling class that thought that this was playing with fire and that it was quite dangerous. And so another element that you kind of highlighted in your question is that there are risks, even for the capitalist ruling class, that things might run amok and that the fascists who are put in power end up doing things in a kind of opportunistic fashion or a self-interested fashion that isn't really just serving the interests of the capitalist ruling class. You know, Hitler did a number of things that, that weren't really expected and that ran against certain interests. 
And most importantly, he didn't get the job done, right, because he lost against the Red Army, which was not what was expected by his financial backers, right? So all of that relationship between the capitalist ruling class and the fascist political elite, as well as the fascist stormtroopers, is, is complex, but we have to see it at that level, right? There's too much of an analysis of fascism that just looks at the, the, the fighters on the ground and then usually tries to blame it on the working class, saying, oh, well, the you know, fascists are all working class people, they're all workers or, or, or white supremacists and other such things, which, you know, of course, there are some elements of that, but we have to see the larger scenario and how it relates to the economic base and to capitalist interests. In that context, it makes sense to look at the struggles that we talk about all the time on this show in the streets that occurred uh, during the summer of uprising against racist police terrorism. And we can see that as an extension of the fight against fascism domestically. But I, I mean, that's how I see it. And, and when you couple the explanation with uh, the 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 uh, business class, the the money class using uh, state driven oppression, which is, that's the police, um, you know, and militias as well to control uh, a working class, the producer class that realizes it's getting ripped off. Um, and as far as wages and benefits are is are concerned, but also other people in the not bourgeois class, not the upper class, but other people in the working class and the poor who realize that they are suffering under different kinds of oppressions um, at the hands of uh, the state-driven police forces, but they are making the connection between those police forces and the ruling class, the capitalist class. I mean, then I think these struggles against uh, police repression and uh, the other working class struggles that people are pushing against. Um, you know, we're looking at anti-CRT le- uh, legislation, you know, the don't say gay bills, this kind of ridiculous uh, a repression coming from governors. It all sort of fits into a larger understanding of fast fascism, but also a more domestic um, understanding of fascism, or at least it does for me. And and this is why I think it makes the Democratic Party almost more dangerous than the Republican Party, because I think the way the business class gets away with perpetrating fascism the way they do domestically is they put a Democratic face on it, Dr. Rockhill. And I'm wondering your thoughts about that. I think you raise an important point that there are ways in which the capitalist system shores itself up by toggling back and forth between the kind of good cop and bad cop of capitalism. And so you have the bad cop, and thank you for highlighting the fact that racist police terror in the United States does have a very close and intimate link to fascism and a deeper history of fascism, right? The Black Panther Party pointed this out quite clearly. You know, there's points where they say that the greatest force of fascism in the United States at that point in time wasn't necessarily fascist vigilantes. It was much more so the police and the police orientation, right, as being part of the repressive state uh, mechanisms. And that that form of bad cop, right, where you have just the brutal violence unleashed on the racialized working class, often can function with greater impunity and with a longer leash if there's a kind of good cop in office. 
And this is one of the most despicable things that we've seen historically where, you know, and there's a lot of examples we could point to where, I don't know, Obama being the deporter in chief. But when you have the good cop in office and there's not much of a social movement against the deportation regime, of course, there was some, but maybe not as uh, developed as what you saw against Trump. And so the ruling class will use the kind of liberal good cop as a way of providing cover for their bad cop ways of repressing the general population through police terror and also through fascist organizations. Because another part of this story, of course, as we should all know from the history of the KKK and other such organizations, is that there is a very fluid relationship between the police and the military on the one hand and fascist organizations on the other. And one area where I've explored this in some detail is a a piece that I wrote for Counterpunch maybe in January of this year that looks into the January 6th insurrection and points out the fact that a lot of the organizations like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Three Percenters are stocked full of current and former members of the military, police, and other law enforcement agencies, right? So uh, if if someone is uh, undertaking race, uh, you know, racist terror against certain sectors of the population, if they're wearing a police uniform or if they're dressed up as the KKK, at the end of the day, the result is the same. And what we need to do is be able to see through that and see how they toggle back and forth between state forces on the one hand and these parastate elements that they allow to often act with impunity on the other. And to see that kind of larger framework of how, I mean, these are basically different strategies of political governance. And we have to see them systemically and how they're all interconnected, meaning how fascism in the parastate form is connected to the repressive state apparatus of the police and the military, and how all of that is connected to forms of liberal governance and the kind of good cop that I was talking about, and ultimately to the capitalist system, because all of these elements are simply trying to shore up, preserve, and in certain cases, intensify capitalist social relations, right? So behind all of this, we have to see the driving mechanism, which is capitalist accumulation and the accumulation of profit at the expense of people. Definitely. At the expense of people, I think, is really one of the is the most important part there. And this is what I think is really uh, crucial for us to see is that everything that we're seeing happening right now uh, in Ukraine and how U.S. imperialism is operating around the globe is indeed at all of our expense. It's at the expense of the planet, at the expense of humanity, at the expense of, you know, clean water, you know, at the expense of anything that could actually sustain life and benefit the masses of people and uh, this planet. It, 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 you know, all of that is tossed aside, swept under the rug and, you know, done away with like so much rubbish. Also. Also, all for the point of uh, lining the pockets of a minority of impossibly wealthy people who uh, subsist on the blood, sweat and tears of the masses of poor, working and oppressed people. And so this is why I think it's important to talk about uh, the role of capitalism when we discuss uh, imperialism as well. You know, that, you know, that is basically always at the root of so many of these problems that we're talking about, because we know that 
in terms of capital and how it has to expand and cross borders. And we see these wars and conflicts for division and redivision of colonies and things like that uh, uh, historically. And, uh, you know, reaching the monopoly stage and, and all those sorts of things. It's fundamentally this system that does everything it can to try to frankly, uh, uh, break us and uh, uh, break our humanity and to, you know, basically put us in a position where uh, we're we're only uh, uh, able to operate well enough to be able to be exploited by this system. So this is a uh, death worshiping, blood sucking, soul breaking system that we live under here under capitalism. And I maintain that the only real way uh, uh, to change a lot of the issues that we see here is through changing the system itself. And outside of that, I just don't think that there's much else that can really happen as we see that the way capitalism is operating will just send us further into oblivion. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Dr. Gabriel Rockhill so much for joining us today. We're back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.